With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the 87th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, PodTop, and CastBox, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. And I want to thank all of my listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you. And thank you for listening and sending all your messages. I hope you are all doing well during this really difficult time we continue to go through. My May Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of April. Please sign up for them. I've provided them for free since 2005, and I have been archiving them since 2007. And I've been doing this in an effort to increase general awareness of data and cybersecurity and privacy issues. And I also do it to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. I have several thousand doing this right now. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. We are now also providing free ebooks and awareness videos through my privacysecuritybrainiacs.com site. Get them from there and sign up for notifications about those from privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. So, have you all been keeping up with the news lately? Well, there's a lot of news out there, isn't there, for a whole lot of different things. There has been a lot being discussed, though, about nation-state espionage, and in particular, nation-state cyber threats and cybersecurity warfare. On April 15th of this year, 2021, U.S. President Biden signed a new sanctions executive order to strengthen protections and responses to identified and harmful foreign activities from Russia, including cyber warfare actions. And the U.S. Department of Defense is taking steps to incorporate new uh, cyber warfare actions and allies, including the U.K., France, Denmark, and Estonia, into the planning 
for Cyber Flag 211, which is an exercise designed to improve U.S. defensive capabilities and resiliency in cyberspace. So I know some of you are probably thinking, what exactly are nation-state cyber threats? What countries are the sources of the cyber threats and who would, who would and should be defending against these cyber threats? Should it be the government? Should it be corporations? Should it be the general public? What can we each individually do to defend it against them? Well, you know what? I have the perfect person to discuss these topics today. Today, I'm speaking with Christopher Burgess. He's a writer, speaker, and commentator on security issues. And Christopher is a former senior security advisor to Cisco. And he also served over 30 years within the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, which awarded him the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal upon his retirement. Christopher also co-authored the book Secrets Stolen, Fortunes Lost, Preventing Intellectual Property Theft and Economic Espionage in the 21st Century. So go check that out online. I know it's out on Amazon. I have a copy of it. Also, follow Christopher on Twitter using at BurgessCT. And he tweets a lot of great information daily. So follow him there. See more about Christopher on my Voice America show page. Christopher, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome back to my show. It's my pleasure, Rebecca, as always. Well, I always love having you here, and I always learn a lot. I know my listeners learn a lot. And now we are seeing, as my lead-in indicated, so much about nation-state cyber threats and you know espionage, and I know you're the perfect person to talk about that. So a lot is written in the news using this term again that we saw a few years ago, but it seems like we're seeing it more and more often, nation-state cyber threats. But the concept of that term, it tends to be highly subjective, and it seems like, especially depending upon what, you know, news station or social media site you're following, it can often be manipulated for political means and goals. So could you please explain to our listeners uh, what is really meant when we're talking about nation state and cyber threats? Uh, with pleasure. So if I may, I'm going to go back a little bit. Uh, the, that book that you mentioned that I co-authored with uh, Richard Power uh, was uh, written in 2008. Hard to believe it's been 13 years. And uh, I, I recall you you appear in the book as well. Uh and in that book, we talked about the four vectors uh, that pose threats to uh, businesses and government entities. And they were the insider, the individual, they were the competitor, they were the criminals, and they were the nation states. And so, as you said, folks are now using the term nation state uh, for political means as well as goals, et cetera. What we mean when we, the practitioners, say nation state, it means that an activity that is taking place 
is either sponsored by or conducted by a country's uh, national security or defense uh, or intelligence, but it's sanctioned by the government of the of a country specifically. And it can be any country. Mm-hmm. Nation states take care of nation's interests. So it could be uh, the United States as well. Absolutely. Nation state activity. It could be the UK. It could be France. It, uh, in the context of the activities of the last few months, mm-hmm. uh, the ne'er-do-wells uh, have been found in Russia and China. Yeah, and we've seen those in a lot of headlines, right? Absolutely. So I know a lot of our listeners, especially I have a very wide range of listeners, as I know, uh, you know, Christopher, besides we having longtime security and privacy professionals, we also have a lot of high school students and college students, and they might wonder, why would nation-state countries want to attack other countries, and why would they want to attack you know, U.S. governments or other types of industries or entities in the U.S. to begin with, or even other countries? What are, what are their goals with these let's, cyber threats? Well, let's grab the word attack first. Yes. And uh, attack carries with it a, um, in my mind's eye, a very uh, direct and physical activity. This, this is attack. Mm-hmm. Nation states oftentimes attempt to compromise individuals and systems in order to collect information. Mm-hmm. They also do it to attack systems. So both are happening and both can happen at the same time, where an entity may come in and want to take all of your personal information off, off of your company's uh, computers Mm-hmm. and turn around and hand it to your competitors so that they can uh, do better in the market than you can. Nations do that. Why do nations do that? Because many nations only have one product that supports their entire GNP. And so the whole nation's in on it. They, you know, if, if uh, for example, oil in Nigeria isn't successful, Nigeria is in a world of hurt. Mm. Uh and China has a bigger portfolio, if you will, and they've been collecting for that portfolio for many, 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 many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, uh, has Russia. So why would they be interested? Number one, they'd be interested so that they can acquire technologies at a price cheaper than developing those technologies. Mm. It's, it's far cheaper to steal the information than to create the information. Secondly, it's uh, sometimes it's to destroy and to destroy means to set you back. Uh, For example, uh, back at the beginning of the century. uh, So that's only what, 20 years ago or so. uh, A a researcher uh, at uh, Ohio's Cleveland Clinic Mm -hmm. stole all the research material surrounding uh, Alzheimer's. Mm. And what the individual couldn't steal, he destroyed. He then took that information abroad and set up the exact lab at which he was working at Cleveland in that country. 
and he was supported by his government. That is a clear uh, rationale. It answers your question is why would somebody want to do that? Well, yeah. now that lab in that country is one of the leading research entities on Alzheimer's. The country was Japan. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> now, the Japanese government didn't sanction the theft, but they turned their eye to the theft. Oh, interesting. All right. And so you, you will see uh, oftentimes nations look for a means to help their, their uh, companies. And, mm -hmm. and sadly, the United States does not do this, where the national intelligence apparatus is helping businesses. Uh, but other countries do. And so a nation's resources are there to acquire information to give companies a leg up. The nation's resources are there also in a national defense, as well as in an intelligence arena, where they're setting the battlefield, if you will, for a conflagration downstream by getting into the infrastructure of other people's, other countries' infrastructure. For example, if there is a conflict between country A and country B, and country A is overwhelmingly stronger than country B, and they know that uh, when the conflict is over, they're going to have to help rebuild country B, isn't it easier to turn off the lights than to, turn, to, than to blow up the power plants? Mm. Well, definitely. It's, it's going to save you money in the end, and it's going to allow reconstruction to happen so much faster. So there's a practical aspect to it as well. But when you turn off the lights, in essence, you turn out command and control. Yeah. And go ahead. Well, I was going to say, as you're t talking about this, I still have the Alzheimer's research in my head because I'm thinking that was he had the person that took all that information. I think you said he was a he or she was a trusted insider. Uh -huh. but, then, but then I was thinking, why didn't they have backups of all this data? somewhere else and if because was it wasn't data it was test results they were it was oh. slides so it was human slides oh my gosh okay that well human slides so he took physical he took physical data shipped it off to kansas city his collaborator there shipped it on home they both ran for the hills and lo and behold uh, that the company was out of business. That story, by the way, is told in Secrets uh, Stolen. But I use it as an example of here's a nation mm -hmm. who turned the the other, you know, turned askance and say, you know, we don't see how it all began, but boy, we're sure glad you're here. <laughs> well, and it's a very good example too of how you need to be uh, alert and aware of much more than just dis digital information right so well, well uh, you and I both know that we work in the world of cyber mm -hmm. but you know me well enough to know that I am not a technologist I am not a gearhead by any stretch of the imagination I made my living on the people involved in technology and on the decision makers involved in countries I was a human -ter. so it's always been human intelligence technology was just a means to an end Right. right, right, and so I've always I always looked at uh, the technological moats, if you will, of protecting data uh, 
as very nice to look at, but they didn't apply to me because wow. I was coming from the inside out. I would I would just go inside and have it carried across the moat as opposed to try to bang down all the defenses. Why bother if you can just get an insider to do it? Oh, exactly. The path of least resistance, right? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, when we're talking about nation state threats sure. and how you, you described how they might be sponsored or funded mm-hmm. by the countries. So um, does that mean that like the head of the country is directing the tax or knows about the tax? So like with this um, executive order, and that recently came out that I mentioned at the top of the show, do you think Vladimir Putin then knows about the types of activities going on or if it was from other countries, uh, Xi Jinping might know about, you know, activities going on or other leaders of those countries or how does that typically work? I, I would say that depending upon the magnitude of the activity, mm-hmm. the will determine how high up a government's food chain individuals had to sign off on the activity. Mm. All right. So mm. solar winds, for example. Yes. Thousands and thousands of systems compromised. Mm-hmm. I heard someone, uh, Microsoft, I guess it was, who said. Thousands of engineers worked on this. Okay. That's mm-hmm. a lot of people, a lot of funds. Supply chain. Heard General Rogers say in a talk recently that, you know, supply chain attacks are really complex. The payoffs are huge, but the expense to doing it is also huge. Mm. And so nations have to get involved in that. Now, in uh, the case of solar winds, which has been attributed to the SVR of Russia, would Vladimir Putin have been the one directing it? Absolutely not. He's the head of state. Mm-hmm. Would he have been knowledgeable that it was occurring? I would say that is probable, mm-hmm. but not in a necessity. Because like any bureaucracy, you, you give directives to your minions and you expect them to execute them. Mm. So the head of the SVR, like the head of the CIA, is given general requirements. We want to know what XYZ is happening or don't let us get blindsided by Y. Then you leave it up to the people you selected to get it done. Right. All right. So nation states means that a portion of the government has their finger in that pie and they are either executing on that activity or they are directing that activity using a surrogate because the most dicey of activities, nations such as Russia and China love to have plausible deniability Mm. or to create the impression that there is plausible deniability. Mm -hmm. If we remember back to Guccifer, Mm-hmm. And the WikiLeaks. Guccifer was sitting in Romania. It was a Romanian doing this. It wasn't a Russian. Mm. But then as time went by and new information came about and new information became known, it turned out that Guccifer was made of whole cloth by the Russians. <laughs> right. All right. But my, my point being is that as they put in place mechanisms to thwart the identification of the attribution 
of whatever the activity was. Right. Well, who are the primary nation state threats to the U.S. right now? I mean, is that potentially any other country? Uh, uh, to the United States? Yeah. So right now, uh, as uh, detailed in the worldwide threat uh, overview that was uh, published last week and or week before last and presented to Congress mm -hmm. uh, by the intelligence community, the Office of Director of National Intelligence led the uh, presentation. The primary threat, nation state threats to the United States are China, Russia, Iran and North Korea. That's it. So then, then you go to secondary threats, which are non-state actors, mm -hmm. terrorists, criminal organizations. They're there, but that's not a nation state. Right. Well, you know, that's interesting because we talk about nation states and cyber threats and cyber attacks, but then also the terrorists, the criminals. Are they using similar types of attack methods, even if they're, you know, not a nation state, are they still using nation state methods? Well, absolutely. Take the organization of Hezbollah, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, they recently compromised a uh, U.S. contractor uh, in Iraq uh, to have that uh, individual provide the names of sources that were involved in providing uh, location data on the uh, IRGC general, uh, Suleimane. Uh, who was subsequently uh, killed in a drone attack. Uh, and those sources, we don't know, we, meaning the public, don't know the disposition of those sources. What we do know is that this uh, U.S. contractor uh, pled guilty to having provided uh, files and files from classified systems to include the identities of up to seven individual sources uh, mm. to the Hezbollah, and that she was recruited online using age-old uh, techniques, uh, and they added a new wrinkle to it. Instead of typing information uh, or speaking the information during the WhatsApp video, mm -hmm. she would hold up picture, she would hold up a piece of paper in front of the camera, and her interlocutor would draw it from there. Oh, wow. So that whoever, whoever might be intercepting didn't have an audio track that was compromising. Interesting. So who was the, the folks who were tracking that and were seeing the communications? You're saying they couldn't hear the audio. Couldn't right. they see the video? Couldn't they see um, that sign, though? Well, apparently, uh, apparently not. You, you could do it when it's in real time. Ah, okay. But all uh, the court documents showed is that uh, the search of her devices uh, after she was apprehended, mm -hmm. they were able to get the uh, pin records that identified when there was a video call, how long it was a video call, and then by looking at the images on her phone, they saw that she had taken pictures of her notes and uh, or that she, yeah, she had taken pictures and shown them of her notes. Interesting. So that's a good point. A lot of times when people think about, you know, having surveillance and having calls recorded, 
I think a lot of assumptions are that everything is recorded, the audio, the video, the, the GPS, the time, date, you know, type of operating system, but it's not always all of that. It's, uh, it depends upon the tool being used to communicate and maybe how they're set up to do the surveillance. And, and whether or not uh, you are actually under surveillance or if they're looking after the fact. Ah, yes. That's a very, so she was trying to um, cut out some of the uh, types of things that could be recorded just to make it harder to have them know what she was actually doing and communicating then. Absolutely. Interesting. Um, Well, they, I want to get into, we're coming up on a break here in just a, a, a little bit, but after the break, I want us to get into um, a release uh, from the FBI of some of the different types of uh, exploits that the Russia is using. So we'll be looking at that when we come at, uh, back from our break. But um, now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. So today I'm speaking with Christopher Burgess, cybersecurity and cyber warfare expert about nation state cyber threats and cyber warfare. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as submit show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Also through my privacyguidance.com website and my privacysecuritybrainiacs.com website. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. 
Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Christopher Burgess, cybersecurity and cyber warfare expert about nation state cyber threats and cyber warfare. So we set the stage before our break about what uh, nation states were, what cyber threats were. I want to get into now, though, some specific uh, types of cyber threats. On April 15th of this year, 2021, um, YCSA and the NSA and the FBI and the U.S., they released a joint cybersecurity advisory on Russian foreign intelligence uh, service actors who were scanning for and exploiting vulnerabilities to compromise U.S. and allied networks. And they called out five different specific technology vulnerabilities. So, Christopher, I was wondering, just at a high level, what are those five different technology vulnerabilities that they were warning us about? Well, uh, all of them uh, sit in the world of the VPN, the virtual private network. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, they've issued CVEs from 2018 through 2020. So uh, only one of these is new. The rest have, have, have been on the books for some time, and folks just don't get around to patching. Wow. And you, as you know, and as we try to explain to folks, that period of time between when a known uh, threat becomes known, the zero day, until it's mitigated, is that, that delta of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. But once it's mitigated by the vendor, mm-hmm. then there's another delta, and that's between when you, the customer, and the potential target gets off their fanny and gets the job done mm-hmm. by implementing that mitigation. And so in this uh, CISA uh, advisory, which mm-hmm. talked about the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVRs, scanning and exploiting vulnerabilities, Excuse me. They were scanning and exploiting five vulnerabilities that had previously been identified. And they were the Fortinet Fortigate VPN, the Cinecore Zimbra Collaboration Suite, the Pulse Secure Pulse Connect VPN, the Citrix Application Delivery Controller and Gateway, and the ZMware Workspace One Access. So, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so you you talked about, and I agree, I mean, even if the vendor fixes the vulnerability, the customers using those uh, tools, they still have work to do, right? So I guess to our listeners, um, I would, wouldn't you think uh, our listeners should check to see if they're using any of those products and if uh, so, if they've been patched? Absolutely. Indeed, uh, while I, I, I cannot advocate having everything on automatic update, mm-hmm. you should be made aware of every update. Mm. And, and the reason I say not automatic, because the, the vendor doesn't know what they're going to break when they update mm. a given device. Mm-hmm. 
and you may have it configured in a way that works for your entity. And if you just allowed automatic updates, you may put yourself, uh, you know, dead in the water. All of a sudden, your production stops because you, you, your, your vendor just shut you down inadvertently. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I, I say to enterprises, always be cautious about using automatic updates, but absolutely have 100% visibility into every available update so that you can do a risk analysis on how soon and how fast you can implement that update to protect against the identified risk so that your eyes are open all the time. Absolutely. And and you know who worries me, Christopher, are the small and medium-sized organizations as well who oftentimes have full um, trust in their managed services providers. And so oftentimes they just assume that all of those patches are being taken care of. But um, I, I think that's a little bit dangerous for that assumption to be made, right? Well, the sales guy said they could trust him. <laughs> and the salesperson <laughs> never does anything that's wrong. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the small and medium business may not have the resources to go into uh, a risk analysis every time a vulnerability is identified in a piece of uh, equipment they use. Uh, that That's the reality. The good news is because they are a small business, their exposure is probably pretty small as well on what types of equipment they're using. So it's not like a Fortune 100 that has to look at thousands of different systems all the time. They're looking at three or four. Right. That said, they can't adopt the mindset that they're not important. Mm -hmm. Because if you're able to make money in providing a good or a service, then somebody is interested in taking that from you. That's That's just reality. Yes. And, And, you know, I found too over the years that even Fortune 50 companies are using very small organizations to do some really critical functions for them. And I I found one time a Fortune 50 company using a three-person business that was doing just critical processing for them. And that that three-person business could cause, you know, a, a Fortune 50 company to come down pretty quickly and I would imagine maybe those nation states who found out information about that three-person business might like to get get to the Fortune 50 company through them, wouldn't they? You know, uh, when I uh, worked at the, in uh, the Washington, D.C. area at the CIA headquarters, mm-hmm. uh, people would laugh at me because I'd always take the stairs. <laughs> and yeah, it, it was part of the health thing. But uh, yeah. one, one day I, I, they said, come on, really, you're, you're not that healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you taking the stairs? And I said, I don't want to ride in an elevator maintained by low bit. Ah. And, and, and that's my analogy mm-hmm. that, that just marries up perfectly to what you just said. Here's this Fortune 50, and they, they are putting, they, they, they don't know they're doing it. Mm-hmm. They don't know the ramifications of what they're doing, but by golly, they're saving money. Mm-hmm. That OPEX is going down and the profits are going up for now. Yes. 
until somebody has a heart attack, till somebody's truck breaks down, till somebody's house uh, catches on fire. And then all of a sudden, the three-person company is out of business, and so are you for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Well, and the three-person business might be a perfectly, you know, fine business, but there's still a lot of risk with a three-person business. And I am advocating for every three-person business because I have been a small business person for the last 15 years. But my my point here is that make sure that small business has their own redundancies in place. Yes. So that if they are subject to an attack or they are subject to uh, some sort of catastrophe, that they too have an an alt route, a, a, a contingency plan that keeps you humming along while they mitigate whatever it is happened to them. And right. that's not too much to ask anybody. Mm-hmm. No, definitely not. I mean, that's just sound business. You know, I want to move to, uh, well, I don't want to move to China. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> China's perfectly fine. I have chi- uh, listeners, so nothing there. Um, but I want to move to the topic of China. And also, you had a great article that you uh, published on April 20th, just, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, in it, it was called Alleged PLA Air Force Officer Pleads Not Guilty Despite FBI's Clear Evidence. So in that, you um, covered uh, about, you know, visiting scholars and students and so on, Um about how there's 350,000 visiting scholars and students from China in the U.S., just as one of the stats. But, um, you know, of course, a lot of those, not, not all of those are th- actual threats, right? But no. what, what percentage then? I mean, when we're, because I think uh, that's so much of the fear today, you know, uh, that unfortunately was kind of propagated over the past year about you know seeing threats just because someone might be from an Asian country, but you know what percentage really are threats? And and with regard to your article, maybe you can point out some of the um, issues involved and maybe where you need organizations need to be aware of where the red flags are for threats. Sure. So uh, we already gave the the example of the Alzheimer's, right? Yeah. Here, here is a foreign uh, uh, researcher involved in research, and they absconded with the uh, the lab tests. Mm-hmm. Um, you have over three hundred and fifty thousand students, and their postdoc, doctorate, graduate, and uh, university level, mm-hmm. and less than point zero. Zero one percent. Very small, then. <laughs> might uh-huh. present to you a threat, but here's the here's the conundrum. Yeah, you have two things going on here: the law of large numbers. Mm-hmm. So nine hundred, about a thousand, if you will, mm-hmm. of that three hundred fifty thousand might be a threat. That's still a lot. That's still a lie, yeah. Okay. And you don't know who they are. And so all you, 
you, you start with, well, they came from China. And why do you say that? Because China has demonstrated that they are willing to use visiting scholars to engage in advanced research. That's great. They're part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And then steal that same research that belongs to Entity X and bring it back to China and commercialize it to compete against the same same entity that just funded the research. Mm -hmm. All right. So the National Institutes of Health started looking at their grants that they were giving for advanced research. Mm -hmm. And they found over 80 had not declared that they were also being funded by China. Oh. All right. Now, some of those researchers were Chinese. So that would be logical, right? The Chinese researcher comes here, NIH gives a grant for this research, China gives a grant for that research, same researchers doing both. You know, you got to make a living. Mm-hmm. But there's a case percolating over there in Harvard that uh, the professor is not Chinese. Mm-hmm. But China doubled his salary for him to take whatever he was researching at Harvard and take it to China. Mm. Now, does the Department of Justice get it right all the time? No, they don't. And there are a handful of cases where an individual has been accused of purloining information and sharing it with China uh, surreptitiously. And uh, as when it when the rubber hit the road and the lawyers got involved and full disclosures were made and discovery occurred, it found out that it was being done totally above board and with permission. So there's no theft here. It was called information sharing. And you had a U.S. attorney that got very much ahead of themselves. Mm. And so it is it is fraught with the potential to be labeled xenophobic mm-hmm. while at the same time doing your basic job of protecting your intellectual property. And so as one who has uh, written a book on this, mm-hmm. <laughs> what I would say to folks is that as part of your hiring process and your acceptance process, you have to put in place a trust equation. Mm -hmm. Are you going to trust this person with information that is of value and could possibly be of value to a competitor or to a nation state? Mm -hmm. Once you've gone through that equation and you say, yeah, I'm willing to hire this person on, bring them into my environment, you have to have in place a checks and balances, not only for them, but for everyone, right? It's the same checks and balances that they would have for you and me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Once once a flag goes up, and it doesn't need to be a red flag, indeed it should be the amber flag, well before the red flag, that an individual is swimming outside their lane. You know, I'm a researcher here, but I'm looking at files over here. Mm-hmm. We, we used to call that rat droppings, where oh. an individual would try to read information that they didn't have access to, and they'd get a 403 error. Mm-hmm. And so I used to scan 403 errors to see who was looking at stuff they didn't have access to. Oh. And, yeah. you know, you can find harvesters that way. And mm-hmm. so once you find a harvester, you go have a talk with them. Hey, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes there's a very legitimate reason, and oftentimes there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, and so what, what I'm getting at is once an individual, and it doesn't matter what 
ethnicity or nationality they are gives you a reason to suspect, then you look. Mm -hmm. And you look with everything you have. Because it's incumbent upon you to protect your trade secrets. Right. Right? And if they are Chinese, they're Chinese. And if they're Russian, they're Russian. And if they're from Des Moines, Iowa, they're from Des Moines, Iowa. Mm -hmm. All applies. And if you can document that that is your system, that is how you march through these accusations of Mm -hmm. xenophobia because you're able to demonstrate that this individual gave me cause to look deeper. And when I looked deeper, I found their hand in my cookie jar. And that's just all there is to it. And we find it a lot Mm -hmm. with China. And I I have to admit, the DOJ did not do themselves a service last year. And I'm writing a piece on it uh, in the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. And it's called the China Initiative, where they, they, they went in and they're looking for Chinese cases all across the United States. That uh, individuals committing espionage or stealing intellectual property uh, in, from U.S. companies or research entities. And my piece is going to say, basically, here's your, your preview. It should have be ca- been called the nation's intelligence initiative. Mm-hmm. Because they should be looking for every individual stealing intellectual property, not just one ethnicity. Yes. And when you talk to them, there mm-hmm. are. There's a Russia squad. There's a there's a North Korea squad. There's a Chinese squad. They they all exist. Mm-hmm. But as you said last year, it was you know it was, it was buzzword bingo. Basically, yeah. uh, you you're fueling the fans of xenophobia, and and thus. Uh, you know, it, it, it was more—it was more living for clicks than uh, li- living for what the reality is. Yes. Well, red flags should never be based, and may—I would say—never be based upon an individual's personal attributes. Nope. Um, they should be based upon maybe that what the person's actions are, or what maybe some of their um, tools are, like you said, that they're doing online, uh, things that might flag for anybody, as you said, uh, something that's going on because they're getting a lot of 403 errors or whatever. So uh, that seems like it would catch a lot more people anyway than if you're you know, chasing rabbit holes based upon just... Um, those types of discriminatory type. Uh, Absolutely. Act- and in that case where uh, the article that you uh, referenced that's available on uh, clearance jobs mm-hmm. that uh, about the PLA Air Force officer, um, the, the, the crime that they're accused of is visa fraud. Mm. That they, they hid their military affiliation from the United States and came and engaged in research having to do with the brain's mechanisms mm-hmm. <laughs> that have applicability with pilots. I mean, so the research had direct applicability to survivability of pilots in high stress, you know, uh, in their jets. 
Mm. That, that's the layman's uh, uh, interpretation of the, what this uh, doctor researched. And so consequently, is it theft when she takes her research that she performed at Stanford back to China? Maybe, maybe not. But she, they have the visa fraud. And so a lot of folks like to say, gosh, this is like the Al Capone. You know, they got him on taxes, but we all knew he was a criminal. So it begged the question, why were they hiding their Air Force affiliation? They were hiding it because they knew that they couldn't get into the U.S. with that affiliation. Mm, yeah. Right? And, and that's why I say I go back to the, the best place to protect yourself is at your front door before you let the people in. Mm -hmm. And that goes for any hire. Exactly. Well, what entities or populations, I mean, when, when we're talking about hiring folks, we now have folks being hired from, you know, their, their teens all the way up to uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s still. I mean, I think we've become a nation. Gentle, gentle. Well, well we're a nation <laughs> of working until, you know, our whole life, right? I mean, I, I anticipate I'll be working my entire life because I love to work. I enjoy what I do. Why should I? I am working my uh, entire life. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what do you, what would uh, people be surprised to learn as being maybe favorite targets of nation state attackers that has not been talked about before? Well, one of the areas that hasn't, that's been talked about a lot, but frankly, hasn't been collated often is the fact that China has been scarfing up information on U.S. citizens and individuals living in the United States, like the Hoover vacuum cleaner that nobody's ever seen. <laughs> and it ranging from health insurance breaches to mm. the credit, credit service breaches to the OPM breach to the more uh, salacious uh, Ashley Madison breach. Mm -hmm. Anywhere that they could collect data mm -hmm. on individuals, they did. And they're putting it into this big hopper. Think of it as this great mosaic of we've got 300 million puzzles to put together and we're collecting all this information and we're going to use AI to, to, to do the work for us. And mm -hmm. we, we have facial recognition and so we scrape the internet. If Google would scrape the internet, you don't think China can do it? Mm -hmm. You know, and so they're scraping the internet. They're matching our pictures. They're looking for uh, they're looking for opportunities where an individual needs help. Mm. And if that individual who needs help also has access to information of interest, mm -hmm. then perhaps a marriage can be made. Doesn't even have to be coercive. Just along the lines of, "I'm sorry, your child's sick." We have some medical care that we've invented over here in China that we can make available to you. Would you like it? Absolutely. Here it is. Six months later, we need some help. Mm -hmm. Will you just save my six-year-old? What can I do for you? Yes. Right? And that, that's not, that's not, it, 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 it is wrong, but it's understandably wrong. Yes. Well, people don't know what they're doing. You know, we're already coming up on the end of our hour here. I guess in maybe a, in one minute, what would you say is the key point or lesson you want our listeners to take away from our discussion today? Sure. Uh, nation states, nations don't have friends. Nations have interests. 
And a nation will always act in their own interest. And it may or may not be consistent over time because we're not in a static state. We're in a dynamic state. And as actions take place, they beget additional actions and positions may adjust. So keep in mind that a nation's perspective today may not be their perspective tomorrow, but whatever their own interest is, is that's what they're going to pursue. And information is the conduit towards their success. All about information. And so information. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Christopher. I always enjoy speaking with you. It's been my pleasure. Today, I've been speaking with Christopher Burgess, cybersecurity and cyber warfare expert about nation state cyber threats and cyber warfare. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more on this topic? Just let me know. Uh, Let me know any other topic you might have to suggest. Contact me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. If you can't make our scheduled debut show on the first Saturday of each month, you can always listen to all of the recordings on your favorite app. And also uh, you can visit my Voice America business website and my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. And and watch your own uh, information out there. As Christopher indicated, that information is used in many different ways by many different folks, cyber criminals, nation states, and so on. So, hon, be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.